Well, good morning, everybody. We are halfway through January, but I just want to let you know it's not too late. If you have some sort of change or resolution you want to make, you can still get in on that. So we're doing a message series entitled Jesus Can Change Your Year. And this message series is designed to engage our faith. So sometimes we get stuck in, in you know, contemplating or choosing. This is actually to help you act on the steps that you need to take. So I have two boys, and uh, there are two things that those boys absolutely do not want to describe their day or their week or their month and especially not their year, and that is they don't want to be lonely and they don't want to be bored. Now, here's the thing about that is I don't think that's just a boy thing. I don't think that's an age thing. I don't think it's an American thing. I think that's just a human thing, that we do not want to be lonely or bored. But I think the question is, is why is it that so many of us feel like we're stuck in feeling those things? I think, I think that part of the reason that we sometimes feel stuck in being lonely and bored in our faith is because we have failed to engage. So, one of the things that we get stuck in is the idea of content consumption. And what I mean by that is we seem to be content with the process of hearing more, learning more, knowing more, but not actually acting on those things. Last week, we talked about the idea of engaging in, in meaningful relationships, and we used the story of Bartimaeus as the example, that Jesus healed his eyesight, but Jesus gave him so much more because Bartimaeus became a part of this group that was following Jesus, and this group gave him community. And there's a time when we have to intentionally choose to move from content consumption to living in community. Now, you can be here week after week and essentially consuming content, and that's not a bad thing. That's a great first step. The problem is, is when we get stuck there, then content consumption becomes unhealthy and wrong for our faith. So what we're looking at today is we're looking at the other part of the equation because relationships, meaningful relationships, as important as they are, is not the complete picture of what Jesus has called us to. Besides just living in community and having these meaningful relationships, Jesus also calls us to live for a cause that matters. Here at Westridge, we've made it a part of our mission to say that we want to help you have those meaningful relationships and that cause. We want to help you find your people, and we want to help you find your purpose. Because when you do, that changes everything. So just a little background before we jump in today. This is from Mark chapter 10. They were now on the way up to Jerusalem, and Jesus was walking ahead of them. The disciples were filled with awe, and the people following behind were overwhelmed with fear. Taking the twelve disciples aside, Jesus once more began to describe everything that was about to happen to him. Listen, he said, we're going up to Jerusalem where the Son of Man... That's a title that Jesus uses for himself. Will be betrayed to the leading priests and the teachers of the religious law. They will sentence him to die and hand him over to the Romans. 
They will mock him, spit on him, flog him with a whip, and kill him. But after three days, he will rise again. Now at this point, if you were here last week, you'll remember that we were also were in Mark 10. Jesus is on his final journey to Jerusalem where he's about to be crucified. And he stops to talk to his disciples about this. This is the third of three times that Jesus has explicitly described what's going to happen when they arrive in Jerusalem. He gives the who, what, when, where, and how very clearly to his disciples. He says, we're going to Jerusalem. It's going to be the chief priests and the religious leaders who are going to hand me over to the Romans. They're going to sentence me, mock me, flog me, spit on me, all these things, and ultimately I'm going to die. So, in this part of the story, these guys are seeing Jesus explain something that is heartbreaking. And as a matter of fact, I want you to, I want you to hang on to the feeling of that moment, of what it would have felt like to hear that. Because we're going to come back to that in just a moment. Now, the major players in the story today are two guys named James and John. So as we continue on, listen to what they say about after Jesus says this. It says, Then James and John, the sons of Zebedee, Zebedee, came over and spoke to him. Teacher, they said, we want you to do us a favor. What is your request? He asked. They replied, when you sit on your glorious throne, we want to sit in places of honor next to you, one on your right and the other on your left. But Jesus said to them, you don't know what you're asking. Are you able to drink from the bitter cup of suffering I am about to drink? Are you able to be baptized with the baptism of suffering I must be baptized with? Oh, yes, they replied, we are able. Then Jesus told them, you will indeed drink from my bitter cup and be baptized with my baptism of suffering, but I have no right to say who will sit on my right or on my left. God has prepared those places for the ones he has chosen. When the ten other disciples heard what James and John had asked, they were indignant. So Jesus called them together and said, You know that the rulers of this world lord it over their people, and officials flaunt their authority over those under them. But among you, it will be different. Whoever wants to be a leader among you must be your servant, and whoever wants to be first among you must be the slave of everyone else. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve others and to give his life as a ransom for many." So as James and John come, keep in mind that these two brothers are two of the first ones who were chosen by Jesus to be a part of this group called disciples. They were also part of the inner circle. So many times Jesus would take Peter, James, and John, and they would do things the other, the other apostles were not included in. But you can also see clearly from the story, these guys were not shy. So don't miss the audacity and the callousness of this moment and what they have actually asked. And to picture that, here's what I want you to do. Imagine that you have a friend and your friend says to you, hey, I've got some news for you. The prognosis is not good. I talked to my doctor and he said, the end is near. 
And he also said that, unfortunately, my last days are going to be filled with just excruciating pain. And when you hear that, what do you say next? I hope it's not, hey, by the way, can you do me a favor? Because that appears to be what James and John are doing in this moment when they ask Jesus to do them a favor. We're getting a picture. It's a window into the maturity and the mentality of these two brothers. Juvenile at best, and it actually seems almost offensive beyond belief. You know, immature people may ask anything. You just never know what might be asked. I know some of you, you are parents of young kids, and you know that there is quite one question that you dread more than any other that those young kids might ask. And what is that? Oh, you've forgotten, so I'll tell you. Can I have a dog? Because when, you're, when your kids say, can I have a dog, you probably are already aware that you want the answer to be no. But you have some questions that you naively ask, hoping that you will convince them that they really don't want a dog. Because you say, well, who's going to feed the dog? And who's going to walk the dog? And who's going to give the dog a bath? And what do the kids say? We will. We're going to do all that. And then you pull out the trump card. Who's going to clean up the dog's poop? And the kids still say yes, and you hope you would convince them by asking some questions. You hope that you would convince them they don't even want a dog, but they don't fall for it. And ultimately, you just have to say, no, it's not happening. It's like Jesus pulls a play from the unwritten parenting handbook because he has a question that I think we could consider very immature. He's been asked a question, and he, he responds with some diplomacy and tact, and he tries to convince James and John with questions that they really don't want what they're asking for. And so he says, do you think you can drink the cup that I'm going to drink? And do you think that you can be baptized with the baptism that I'm going to be baptized with? And of course they say, yes, yes, absolutely no problem. I don't think there's any question that James and John are extremely selfish in this moment. But there's, there's more behind the thinking that led to this question. Because their people, the Jewish people, have been either in captivity or oppressed for centuries. So for hundreds of years, beginning with Babylon, and then it was Persia, and then Greece, and now it's Rome. And these countries seem to enjoy keeping their foot on the throat of the Jewish people. And on top of that, on top of the fact that there was this oppression and captivity there's also the fact that every young Jewish boy like James and John would have grown up in school studying the Torah, the, the Old Testament Scriptures that said, there's a Savior coming. God is going to send us a Messiah who's going to save His people. And that was a part of the mentality that was in everything that they thought about and saw with regard to their people. And... Now, naturally, James and John are thinking, here's Jesus. He's a miracle worker. He's, he's the sa we believe He's the Savior. He's going to save us from the powerful Roman state. 
just a month ago, we were singing about this because you remember, O come, O come, Emmanuel, and ransom captive Israel. That, that wasn't just a song. That was the way that they thought. If you looked at Luke, one of the other biographers of Jesus, when he writes about Jesus going to his hometown and giving his first sermon, Jesus actually says, I've come because I'm going to bring good news to the poor. I'm going to set the captives free. I'm going to make blind people see, and those who are oppressed are going to be released. But this group, the twelve, they just really were not understanding that Jesus had something different. And he calls this group of twelve, you know, there were, there were many people following Jesus. He calls this group of twelve over to the side, and he begins to explain what it is that they've missed. Now, you might have noticed that the other ten, when James and John asked Jesus, it says the other ten were indignant. We might like to think that they were upset because James and John asked something that was very insensitive and very greedy, but I don't think that's the case. I think in reality, they were probably upset because they hadn't thought to ask for it first. So Jesus, it almost feels like, has a little dumpster fire going on because it seems like the people that he is about to turn his mission over to, the people who will lead for him when he is gone, seem to have missed one of the most important parts of what it means to follow Jesus. And Jesus begins to explain to them, he says, you know, out in the world, every organization, every business, every corporation, every government, it's all about having the right power, a foundation of power. Because if you can acquire enough power, you can impose your will on the people around you. And that was the definition of success. Powerful control is the name of the game, and every kingdom, Jesus says, is operating under a power and control system except mine. Jesus says it's going to be different with you. And Jesus gives sort of a master class in, in humble leadership because he says, if you really want to lead, you do that by becoming a servant, by serving people. If you really want to be first, if you want a great place, you do that by becoming the slave of all. And the truth is, Jesus lived that out. As a matter of fact, he lived it out better than anyone and there's probably not a better description of what it looks like for Jesus to have lived that out than when you look in Philippians. Here's how it describes Jesus' attitude. It's as though he was God. He did not think of equality with God as something to cling to. Instead, he gave up his divine privileges. He took the humble position of a slave and was born as a human being. When he appeared in human form, he humbled himself in obedience and died a criminal's death on the cross. So the truth is, Jesus had every right to the luxuries and the honor and the glory of heaven, and he intentionally chooses to let go and give that up, and he becomes someone who obeys rather than commands. And what he does is he becomes the lowest servant, even to the point that he gives his life on the cross. So James and John had envisioned something about Jesus becoming this incredible king, lifted up for all the world to see. And it was true that 
Jesus was lifted up, but his coronation was with a crown of thorns. And instead of a throne, Jesus was on a cross. And there were people on the right and on the left, but it wasn't James and John. As plainly as possible, Jesus is trying to explain to these disciples that if you choose, if you're choosing to follow me, that means that you are going to choose to be self, instead of self-oriented, you're going to be other-oriented. I'd love to just kind of sit here and beat up on James and John and the other disciples and their selfishness and their, their immaturity, but the truth of the matter is, the Bible sort of has this mirror aspect to it. And what that means is, it pushes me to reflect on me and pushes you to reflect on you. And the question that I have to ask me and the question you have to ask you is, is my life other-oriented? Or is my life self-oriented? I could give you a quick test, and here's what it is. It's called the three-second test. All we're going to do, we're going to do this together. It's going to be fun. All we're going to do is we're going to draw, with our index finger on our forehead, we're going to draw the capital letter E, okay? Do it with me. Just draw the capital letter E on your forehead, okay? Everybody pass? Good. Congratulations. But the real test is this. It's not so much could you write the letter. The real test is what direction were the three little lines going? Because essentially, if your three little lines went to the right, that meant that you oriented it to be read by you for your convenience. If your E had the little lines going to the left, you were thinking about others and you were writing it so it would be convenient for them to see it. Don't worry, I'm the only one that saw it. You're safe. But here's the thing. There were two psychology professors, Adam Galinsky and this guy named Maurice uh, Schweitzer, who, who created this little test, and they said, they said, by that simple three-second test, you could tell if someone was more selfish or selfless. I don't know if that test really can give you the right answer, but I think there probably are some questions that we could ask to determine where we are on that spectrum. Let me just say this. I'm going to challenge you to ask your family these questions about you. Here we go. How am I at listening to other people? How am I at putting other people first? Am I controlling in my relationships with other people? Am I truly happy for other people when they do well? Good questions to think about where you are. And the reason I say ask family members is because they'll be brutally honest. And the reason that I say ask questions is because the right questions asked by the right people can be life-changing. So more than drawing a letter on your forehead, it might give some indication on where you are between self and others. How we see other people is truly right at the heart of this thing that we call faith. Many times we like to think of ourselves as being kind of individually connected to God, but the truth of the matter is God describes something very, very different about our relationship with him. It's not quite as individual, maybe, as we'd like to think. When God describes this body, this community, this group that we call the church, 
he, he refers to it as a body. So when he's writing through the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, it shows this metaphor, this description of what we are as a body compared to the human body. Here's what it says. The human body has many parts, but the many parts make up one whole body. So it is with the body of Christ. Yes, the body has many different parts, not just one part. If the foot says, I'm not a part of the body because I'm not a hand, that does not make it any less a part of the body. And if the ear says, I'm not a part of the body because I'm not an eye, would that make it any less a part of the body? If the whole body were an eye, how would you hear? Or if the whole body were an ear, how would you smell anything? This makes for harmony among the members so that all the members care for each other. If one part suffers, all the parts suffer with it. And if one part is honored, all the parts are glad. All of you together are Christ's body, and each of you is a part of it. In that description, there's no place for thinking too highly of yourself, and there's no place for thinking too lowly of yourself. Every single one of us is a part and is needed, and any part that is disconnected cannot thrive or probably even survive. Here's what God does. He takes each one of us, and he takes our personality and our experiences and our successes and our trauma and our family history and our ethnic background and our passions and our abilities and everything that we are, and he wraps that up, and with that, he creates a part of the body. And when he does, there is a unique contribution that that part of the body can give that no other part can give. Some of us are really good at teaching kids. Some of us are really good at welcoming people at the door in the parking lot. Some of us are good at making sure hungry people get fed. Some of us love seeing those who don't have clean water and education get those things. Some of us are really good at using technology to make sure that people stay connected. Some people are good at humbly leading so that people want to follow. Some people provide gifts and resources to those without some people are great at managing financial resources so that things work. Some people love to stay behind the scenes and just make sure that for whatever's happening, everything is prepared and ready. Some people like to show up early just to make sure we've got a cup of coffee. And there are people who are leading small groups and doing many other things around here. And besides that, there are people who are good at doing things that they have not even yet discovered. My, my grandpa Alexander had polio, and that was long before I knew him. So when he first had polio, the doctors told him, you're never going to walk again. Well, I don't know if it's just sheer determination, but soon he was walking with a walker, and then he walked with a cane. And by the time I knew him, my grandpa was walking without any kind of assistance. But there was one leg that was always just kind of dragging. It, it didn't feel like it was helping him walk. It was probably, if anything, maybe slowing him down. And when you think about the images of the human body and how each part is needed and necessary, I want to ask you if it's true that every single one of us, every single one, 
is created to be a part of this thing called the body that we normally call the church. The question is, what part do you play? What is, what's your role in this body? And I believe that deep, deep down, you want to be a part of a body like this because I think that's the way God created us. He created us to have that desire to be able to be a part of something bigger than ourselves so that we could change the world. So the hard question that I have for you today, the hard question is this. If every part of this body was just as invested and functioned just like you, what kind of body would this be? I realize that question can sound a little heavy-handed, kind of clobbering people with guilt, and I don't mean it like that at all. Because it is true that if you're not invested, we're missing you, and we need you. But the other side is you're missing us because you're missing out on the benefits of what it means to be a part of a body where you're cared for and loved. So there's a danger, and it's not just for James and John, but there's a danger in not having the right view of the part that we play. And the danger for some people, it's dangerous because they might think far too much of themselves and their role. And the truth is, the risk might very often be for someone who would stand on a stage and try to tell other people about how to live out their faith. It's a risk, it's a danger of maybe thinking a little too highly of yourself. But there's another side Another danger for others who might think that they can just slink into the background and never play a part and they won't be missed. I feel confident in saying that without investing yourself in this body or another body somewhere, that you will never be completely fulfilled in your life. And so I've got an invitation for you today. And here's what the invite is. Maybe not everybody here is really ready to take a step of engaging in serving other people. But if you've been considering that, if you've been considering it, but you're not quite convinced of what your role is or what you should do, we've got an opportunity coming up that lets you take kind of a half step. And it's actually called Half Step to Serving. It's going to be here on February 5th where you can meet with some of our ministry leaders. They can tell you about their ministries. They can talk about different opportunities where you can engage. So on February 5th, after this 1030 service, you're going to be invited into a 25-minute meeting, very short, just so that you can have the opportunity to take a half step and explore and see if you can find a place that you can let your gifts and your abilities be lived out. This church, I believe, is God's design to fulfill your inner desire for those meaningful relationships and a cause to live for. And when you have both, it's going to change your life.